This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. Muck Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with Muck Delivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. With fast funding up to $10,000 available through net credit, our online application process was designed to get the money you need quickly if approved. You can borrow an amount that meets your needs and repay in a way that works for your financial situation. And we report on-time payments to credit bureaus so you can build credit history as you repay. See what net credit can do for you today. Check your eligibility without affecting your credit score at netcredit.com. All net credit loans and lines of credit are offered by a member of the net credit family of companies or one of our lending partners. Visit netcredit.com slash partners for more information. On August 25th, I'm the most brutal, vicious, ruthless champion that ever been. The most anticipated original series is here. You may know Tyson. You're the heavyweight champion of the world, young, rich, and black. But do you know Mike? The minute you get too big, they gotta cut you down. Starring Trevante Rhodes. Um, I am Mike. And Harvey Keitel. They'll love you as much as they fear you. Now I'm really gonna have some fun. Mike, series premiere August 25th, only on Hulu. Your work technology should help your organization run better. Monday.com is an intuitive platform designed to help teams of all sizes work better together and maximize results. With Monday.com, you can easily customize your workflows to fit your team's exact needs and create automated updates to keep everyone up to speed in real time. Experience the power of a single platform that replaces your costly tech toolbox and the headache that comes with it. To start your 14-day free trial, go to Monday.com. Your next success begins with University of Maryland Global Campus. With no application fee if you apply by August 31st, there's never been a better time to focus on your future. UMGC offers 100% online and hybrid courses, personalized advising, affordable tuition, and more than 125 degrees and certificate programs in numerous career-relevant fields. Put yourself on the path to succeed again. Apply by August 31st and pay no application fee. Learn more at umgc.edu slash podcast. Certified to operate by Chev. This show is brought to you by The Lion's King. The Lion's King is the boisterous warts and all autobiography of Millwall's legendary record-breaking goalkeeper Brian King. Called up for England by Sir Alf Ramsey, his was a career touched by a parade of greats such as Gordon Banks, Bobby Moore, and Lev Yashin. But this wickedly funny tale is a brutally candid account of life at the sharp end of English football's golden age in the 1960s and 70s. Pre-order your copy now, the link to order is in the show notes. Sit back and enjoy part one. Now over to that Millwall podcast hosts. Omar, Mickey and Neil.
Welcome to a very special edition of that Mill podcast. Today we've got three all-time Mill greats. To be more specific, three fantastic Mill goalkeepers. First off, we've got Brian King, who made 340 league and cup appearances for Mill between 1967 and 1975, missing just one league game in five years. Signed by Benny Fenton from non-league Chelmsford City as cover for Laurie Leslie, is alongside Alex Stepney, seen as the best goalkeepers Mill have had since the Second World War. The second ever player to win the Player of the Year award in 1972, when the club narrowly missed out on promotion to the First Division, an England under-23 international, he was called up for the senior squad for a game against Portugal in 1974 and left the club for the relegation from Division 2 in 1975. Now based in Norway, where he has scouted and managed several clubs. Our second guest is Brian Horn, coming from a Mill supporting family. Brian came through the youth ranks in the mid to late 80s, going on to make 196 league and cup appearances for the club. An excellent shot stopper, Brian won youth honours for England at under-19, under-20 and under-21 levels. He was also Vice Player of the Year in the year of 1987, a year before making a vital contribution in the rise to the First Division for the only time in the club's history. He didn't play for the final two seasons under Bruce Rioch after falling out of favour with their manager. He now runs a corporate hospitality company and is a UEFA match agent. Our final guest is David Ford, a player who made 339 League and Cup appearances for the club, after arriving on a free transfer from Cardiff City, via a successful loan spell at Bournemouth, which saw him save a penalty from Mill legend Neil Harris. That obviously did enough to convince Kenny Jacket and Tony Burns at the time, with David arriving and going on to make 157 league appearances in a row over the course of three seasons. He stabbed himself as Ireland's number one, becoming the oldest player to complain in a competitive game for the side when he took to the field against Sweden in March 2013. Fordy was also voted Mills Player of the Year by the fans in 2014 and ever present in the 2010 league playoff winning team, he also played in the 2013 FA Cup semi-final. He now runs a personal coaching and development company, buckle in for two parts of a great, great show. Right, uh, obviously all three of you came to Millwall. I'll start off with Kingy. Uh, how did your move to Millwall come about and why Millwall? Great difficulty. You're a long way from where I lived. But um, no, I was playing for Chelsea City in the Southern League and um, just after we played in a final at the Essex Professional Cup at the time against South End. And uh, yeah, we'd done all right. And I got word that um, there was a couple of clubs looking at me and one of them was Millwall. And our captain on the day was Peter Shreves. And um, Shreves had a pal at Millwall called Kenny Jones. And he said, if you're going to go anywhere, come to Millwall, you might have a chance. So, dear old Benny, he um, he called me up at home and uh, he said, how, how would you fancy going full-time as a pro? And I said, yeah. Yeah, I'm well interested. Anyway, the money offered me was, at that time, supposedly good. Um, in today's market, you can have a laugh over it. But um, I must admit, when he called me up and I said, well, um, you want to come and see me about Thursday? This was on the Tuesday. He said, oh, no, no. He said, I want to see you before then. I said, well, it's only Wednesday, isn't it? He said, no, no. He said, um, what about tonight? I said, well, where are you? He said, I'm at the end of the road in a phone box. So um, down he come. And we done the deal there and then. And that's how I joined Millwall. and. Uh, I got me letter from Benny who I was going to meet at Liverpool Street Station. That was Bobby Hunt. And um, he ain't the best person to meet anywhere, Bobby. Full of fun. 
taking the piss all the time. And um, we had a very enjoyable ride from Liverpool Street at Whitechapel, Whitechapel to New Cross Gate. Wandered down to the den the first time. And that was an experience all on its own. Because I think you'd had a, from reading your book, you'd had a, you had a trial at Swindon, had you, earlier in your career? Yeah, when I was when I was 15. I went down there and, but Ed was a manager. Um, I, was, I, went, I was 14, actually, I went down there and he told me I was too small. So when we played over Palace a few years later, he said, bloody hell, he said, was that you who came down to the trial? I said, yeah, I was about five foot nine then. I'm six foot three now. And um, Bert said, well, good luck to you, son. I think we drew two each that day over there. Same question to Horney. You're from a Millwall supporting family. Uh, yeah. There was no question that you were going to join the club, was there? Yeah, well, um, my, my dad, obviously, I mean, Nan and my granddad are all Millwall supporters. He used to live on the Wood Dean Estate in Peckham. So... Um, they, uh, they, they've supported the club for many years. My dad's been a season ticket holder now for 60 years. So um, they know the club inside out and seen load, loads of players and people come through the club. But um, I think it was my granddad asked the late Eddie Heath um, whether you loathe him or love him, you know, for what, what happened to him in the game. But um, he asked Eddie Heath for a trial and, and, and they turned me down. And then I think maybe six, seven months later, my dad, my dad asked for a trial and I eventually got one. We started at the club from, I think, about 10 years old, training at Southwark Park and then went through the system and ended up in the, in the first team. And yeah, as they say, the rest was history. Yeah, was, yeah, was there any doubt that, that you would join Millwall? Were there any other clubs interested in you at the time? Yeah, I, I, had, I had about 17 clubs after me, but... You know, with with, with like the, the likes of uh, Man United, Norwich, Ipswich, West Ham, all, all the local clubs around my area, um, from where from where we lived in Essex, um, I had a lot of clubs that wanted to sign me. But you know, there was with me dad and, and and nan and granddad, there was only going to be one club I was going to join, and you know, thank God it was Millwall, and, and it turned out all right for me. Yeah, not a bad move, really, was it? <laughs> yeah, well, all things. Dad said I couldn't live in the house if I went anywhere else, so I didn't have much options, really. <laughs> and if we come on to 40, yeah, well, you were a little bit later. Yeah, but did you have an agent that brokered the move or anything like that? Um, did I have an agent? There was an agent involved at the time. Um, but I think more or less how it did come about was we played, I was on loan from Cardiff to Bournemouth. And they were really struggling at the time. At the bottom of League One, they were going into liquidation and all that. And they'd managed to get an emergency loan goalkeeper in. So they, they searched high and low and uh, they couldn't get anyone in. So they managed to get me in anyway, eventually. So I went there and I played um, 11, 12 games, did really well. And we played Millwall and they were struggling as well. At the, I think Kenny had just come in. John Burleson had just taken over the club. Um, and it was a big game kind of down the bottom of the league and we beat them 1-0 and I saved the penalty from Chopper so that was a that was a kind of defining moment and I think it was more or less Tony Burns when I went into the into the tunnel afterwards and, and uh, Tony being a huge servant I think he was at the club what 18 years now um, I think he worked with you Horny did he? Yeah he did Burns yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely great, absolute. great lad lovely 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 man what a hero an absolute boss yeah. man and yeah. uh that was, yeah. that was our first goalkeeping coach, by the way, Fordy. 
Seriously. I didn't, I, I didn't have a goalkeeping coach at a club. Kingy was my first goalkeeping coach. Wow, that's amazing. That I never under, knew that. That was, under, that was under George Graham. Yeah, George Graham. And then were you there with Mick then? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For, for a little oh. while. Yeah, for a little while, yeah. So, yeah, Burnsy, Burnsy met me in the Burnsy met me in the tunnel, shook me hand, and I think you know he he kind of planted the seed there that once I got a phone call in somewhere off Kenny Jacket and uh, Veronica Quinn, who's the head of catering down there still today, works closely alongside Horny at the moment. She's an absolute hero as well, an absolute lioness, and uh, she gave me a call and she was like, I think Kenny was along the lines of, well, how can we twist an Irish man? Well, we get an Irish woman, an Irish mammy to give him a shout and we get him down to Millwall. So that's how it came about. Yeah, it was amazing. I have to say, Veronica is an an absolute gem for that club. Um, The amount of stuff she does behind the scenes and everything else, and most of it doesn't get recognised and most of it doesn't get seen. But she is, her and Colin are the absolute lifeblood of that club. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Been there what thirty something years, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they joined when I was here. Okay, yeah. There was Kingy. I don't know if you remember this fella, Harry Groves. Oh, Harry, yeah. Harry Groves. So he used to run the club before them two joined the old den. Yeah, he was, he was an old chap. He must have been in his seventies or eighties, then Kingy, mustn't he? Well, he introduced the lottery, and he used to win every week. <laughs> in the office called Dickie Richardson if Harry didn't win Dickie won Dickie and, Dickie yeah and as you know Harry was involved with some very heavy duty people in the area during that spell slightly <laughs> and, um, when when everybody went to jail Harry didn't so he's he <laughs> the lottery again there I think <laughs> Yeah, but they're, they're, they're brilliant, mate. Veronica is, is such a special lady, and, and Sess as well. Sess has been now this year, Doc. I think them three, you know, the, as you say, uh, do a brilliant, brilliant job for the club, and long may it continue. Yeah, Steph's been there years, hasn't he? I think she's, yeah, I think, yeah. I think he got 25 years as well, didn't he? I think it was 25 years or something not yeah, long he was, ago. He was at the old den as well. He, he probably had the last five, maybe 10 years at the old den, and then obviously he's, he's moved over to the new place. And, uh, yeah, so it was, they're great people, mate. Really nice people. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. I think they're great. But just just quickly going back to, obviously, you mentioned 40 with the tunnel. Um, and obviously, you had an approach or whatnot in the tunnel. So there was a, um, me and Omar done a, um, a family special. We were trying to get you on, but Michael said you were busy. But we got Mike, um, Gary Alexander, we got Alan Dunn, and we had um, Robbo on. And they turned around and, and they all turned around and said that you were one absolutely terrifying fella in the in the in the tunnel before the game. Was this something what you all did, or is this something unique to you that before going out that you because obviously keepers are normally the biggest out of the team, were you ones were in started intimidating the players before you went out? We'll start out with you, Forty. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think I think that came from me from when I started in League of Ireland and when I was with Galway United. And um we ended up playing um we ended up playing a club called uh, Cork City and there was a guy called Declan Daly. And this guy was an absolute man now. And I remember I was only nineteen twenty at the time and I remember walking out just out in the tunnel and I was one nil, two nil, three nil down in my head, just looking at the man. I was just thinking, This man's an absolute specimen here. He was just 
just his presence alone, his two quads where he had the biggest legs I've ever seen. And by God, was I terrified of him. And I thought, this guy comes in for a corner or a cross here and I'm coming for a ball. Like, you know, there's only one winner and that's him. <laughs> so uh, I quickly realized that, you know, th- throughout the game and what can be actually done in the tunnel and what can be done before games. And I definitely <laughs> thought, buying into that, coming into Millwall, and I often remember, you know, friends coming to me and saying to me that they were outside the den and when teams arrived and just the, uh, you know, he said, just just to see the players, the opposition's faces with the welcome they got walking in the door at, at the den and stuff, you know, and he said they used to be absolutely terrified and frightened. So I thought, right, if, if we can, you know, use this to our advantage and anything like that, and I definitely thought it was, because it was a hostile environment, I just totally embraced it and embellished it. And it was just a part of my nature that, once it came to games and once it came to match day, I was just ready to step out into that space. I was just like, right, I'm, I'm ready to go to toe to toe here. And uh, outside the pitch, yeah, not a problem. We'll have, we'll have, we'll have a laugh and we'll have a drink and stuff. But once we go, once we cross that white line, it's a different ball game. Yeah, because Mike said when he when he was writing a book, he used to make a point of standing at the back, and he said all you could hear was your, you know, Irish Irish tones screaming out, telling players. Take him, he's nothing. Look at him, he's shivering now and all of this. He said it was just pure intimidation. I mean, um, I mean, King, go to um go to Brian King. I mean, who was that you? Was that your role in the team, or was there another player who used to do intimidation in the in the tunnels, or was it completely different back then in your time? Totally different. I mean, you come in the ground, five to three, the whistle would go, <laughs> or the bell would go. Out you went. At three o'clock, you're kicking off. I mean, you had four or five shots. Somebody threw a ball at you, and away you went. But the intimidation was when you were walking through 150 coppers who were usually congregated in the room outside of both the dressing rooms. So, <laughs> you know, you always knew there was going to be a little bit of bother somewhere along the line here. Um, certainly from the crowd or whatever. But, um, no, we all... You know, it's all that one. Come on, lads, let's get amongst it. Let's let's have a go here. But the teams used to run out singly then, you know what I mean? Um, we didn't run out side by side. It's only a couple of games we've done that. That was the time Norwich City went up that year when we missed out. And um, they had a technique where they were half past two, they had to go out on the grass and they had to um, had to do the stretches and the, and the warm-up procedure, what dear old Ron Saunders put them through. But um, he wasn't having none of that, Benny. No one's going on that grass until five to three. So him and Ron Saunders had a, had a right go in the, in, in the tunnel, by the way. And um, he said, you set, you set foot on that pitch. He said, any of your players, set, I'm coming out of you, Ron. He said, and I'll have you. And we're all having a right laugh about it. But, but that was Benny. And I mean, our pitch weren't the best then. But if they'd have gone out that day, I mean, it was pissing with rain and, and all sorts and them. And you you just, you never had a chance to have a go at anybody. You never had a chance to have a go at your, your teammates. But in the dressing room, wind yourselves up, get out, five to three, five minutes, and you're kicking off. I mean, nowadays, they're out on the pitch at 20 past two. Yeah, no, yeah, it's all about the warm-up and everything else. So was that, was that your position um, of intimidator when you were there, um, Horny, or was that, um, I could no, probably really. think that, Possibly someone else. 
No, not really. When you have Terry Erlock in your side, you don't have to do anything, do you? So <laughs> That's what I was thinking of. <laughs> it's, it's quite easy. But, but going back before that, I think I was very lucky. I, I grew up with some great players that come through the youth system and, uh, you know, maybe maybe six or seven of us made it out of the youth team. Neil Ruddock, myself, Michael Marks, David Thompson, Darren Morgan. You know, there was, there was a lot of players that sort of went on and got into the first Sean Spiram. A lot of players that you know, like come through the system and go into the first team at some stage during their career. So, you know, we, we got to the semi-final, I think, in the FA Youth Cup, and and then progressed into the first team, and then the likes of Teddy and and Doc coming in, and we didn't have to intimidate everybody. We we were we were a decent side. They were worried about us. So, I suppose I was in a very very fortunate position. But I can understand what Fordy's saying and and trying to get in amongst them when, when when we were lucky enough to play in the top division for them two years, when he was lining up against the best players in, in England at that time. There were some man mountains out there standing up against David Seaman and Peter Schmeichel. They, they are absolutely massive men. And uh, as Fordy well saying, you know, uh, you have to be on your metal when you're playing against them type of people. Yeah, well, we're talking about intimidation. You, you three guys were the last line of defence for Millwall behind some pretty vociferous crowds. What was it actually like to play in front of a Millwall crowd? I'll start off with corny as you. Yeah, but brilliant. I mean, the thing is with a Millwall crowd, they're not they're not backwards in coming forwards. If you're having a bad time, they'll let you know you're having a bad time. Don't worry about that. So, you know, being in goal... You, you, you tend to hear when you're playing well, you don't really hear a lot or having a good game. You don't tend to hear a lot. You get on with the game. When you made a boo-boo here or there or made a mistake, you know, you, you tend to hear the uh, horn your shit or whatever, you know, from behind the goal. That's a polite term. But, you know, but I, I always find that, I like that because that, that puts you in a, in a mental space where you know you've got to go out there and and, uh, and play. You know, you know you've got to go out there. Concentration level's got to be high. I love the Millwall supporters, you know. I, you know, I'm a Millwall supporter myself. So, as I say to you, that it didn't bother me in any way, you know, uh, good or bad. It, it didn't bother me. I knew I had to go out there and try and perform at my best. And with with the way they were, that they they, they tried that that inspired me to to play well for them. So I used that to my advantage. I didn't look at it as a negative or any way, shape or form. I looked at it as a, a positive thing for me. Because you weren't ever a crowd favourite, Kingy, when you first arrived at the club, were you? Well, I mean, Alex Stepney had just left. Laurie Leslie was a goalkeeper in the first team. And to be fair, I joined the club in July. Um, and by September, I was in the first team. And then that was playing in the League Cup. And then October... It, it, it was always one of them situations, you know, Christ, I've come from the Southern League, I'm going to play in the reserves at Millwall, where there's maybe 100 people. And then all of a sudden I'm playing against Blackpool and there's 18,000, 19,000 there. And um, they were very critical if you made a mistake because they had a great goalkeeper in Alex Stepney. And Laurie Leslie was maybe the bravest goalkeeper I've ever, ever seen. And it was a great teacher of goalkeepers. Um, but it was, it was something you had to come through, and I did. And um, it either makes you or breaks you. And if I want to sit and suck my thumb and what's the name in the corner, then fine. But but I thought, sod it. I'll show them that I can play. And I mean, I went down there when I was 60 years of age. 
And I've been at the den for 40 years. And when 16,000 people can stand up and say, you weren't a bad goalkeeper, I mean, I must have done something right. Yeah, because Fordy, you'd actually had a spell at a, yeah, well, at a certain club in East London. And then you came to Millwall. How did you find the Millwall crowd were receptive to you? Yeah, I think very much on what the both lines of what the Horny and uh, Kingy have said. Like, you know, like Kingy said, you know, you you push through it and you crack on through it. For me, it was slightly different because everything that kind of came to my career was always came late to me. I was always a late developer. So I was under, I put myself under a lot of pressure. I come to the club at 28 years of age and it was really my first opportunity, my first chance to establish myself as a number one at 28. So there was a lot of question marks over, you know, can I perform at number one level at Millwall or any other club in the UK? So that, that was the pressure I had on myself. Um, I knew coming to the club, it was it was just made for me. It was just ripe. I thought, wow, new chairman came in. Kenny had plans on on getting promoted. Um, I had aspirations of playing for Ireland, and I just thought, wow, what what a great opportunity this is. I always felt Millwall were a minimum championship club, and you know that League One wasn't a fair representation. But once I went there, it was uh, it was definitely a, a huge challenge for me. I didn't actually fully understand. The, the culture of the club and only through working with Tony Burns closely, who knows the club inside out, you know, he was, he was a game changer. And like that, the relationship I built with, with the lads like that, the, um, the likes of Chopper, Donny, Gary Alexander, Robbo, uh, Tony Craig, all those lads that have a real connection and a real association to the, the culture and they just get the club inside out. So I just thought, right, this is, this is what I need to do. This is how I need to be. And then I just started to kind of get into it more and more and more. And uh, like Rahorny says, you know, you just get that bit more comfortable with it and then you start to to really enjoy it. And then once that sense of enjoyment came, it was, yeah, I just, I just loved it. I just loved playing every week in front of, in front of the fans and then getting those wins and whether it was at the den or the away games, there was such a, it was, it was such a high, it was, you know, euphoric, like, you know, it was like a shot in the air. It was amazing. Yeah, was it quite safe to say that once a Millwall crowd appreciates you, they really appreciate you? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's uh, there's no real middle ground. You know, it's either one way or the other. They're either not going to embrace you at all, or they're just going to absolutely love you and adore you. And it's it's quite a simple, you know, it's quite a simple recipe. I always felt anyhow with Millwall. Once you give a hundred percent, if you wore your heart in the sleeve, and you give it absolutely everything. They, they totally, totally get that. I remember, Horny, you might have been at that game on the Tuesday night when we got beat to uh, Birmingham. Was it 6-1 or? Yeah. Ziggich played. And we got reduced down to eight men. We had three sendings off and we got, got thanked. But everybody ran and we, we got clapped off. I've never seen it before in my life. It was amazing. Even though yeah. when I think about it, it sends a shiver up my spine. It was phenomenal. Yeah. And, and that just summed the club up for me beautifully. Yeah, but I don't think you have to be the most skillful player to have ever played the game. Yeah, to be appreciated, but um, yeah, by Millwall crowd. But if they can see you putting in the effort, and they can see you trying, that goes hell of a long way, down well, it's, it's, it's a working man's club, isn't it? It's it's a club where the supporters go out to work Monday to Friday. They they have to uh, well, they supposedly work hard um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, give their all during the week. So when they pay their money to come and watch us play. That's, that's only what they expect back from us, and if they don't get it, they're they're entitled to their uh, 
to their words on the terraces and, and, and what they do. And that, that's basically Millwall in a nutshell. And, you know, as long as you give your all, whatever player it is, whatever culture, wherever you're from, if uh, if you give your all, then uh, you're, you're going to get the respect back from the from the crowd. I always thought yeah. that if you could play at Millwall, you could play anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you, mate. One one million percent. It's a great it's a great ground to learn your career. If you're run, a young boy, Alex Ray coming down from Falkirk and and getting in the first team young, and he, he went on to have a brilliant career. It's Harry Kane coming down, learning his learning his career at Den as well. Then Chris Woods now at Burnley. You know them type of players that that have come down and and played in front of a, a Millwall crowd. I think it's a great, great club to be at and learn your trade. Fantastic. Yeah, totally agree. So what was the most memorable game you played in? We'll start off with Kingy with this one. Well, um, I suppose the last game of that season, 72, when we had to beat Preston, um, on probably the worst pitch you've ever seen. I don't know whether you've seen it on YouTube or whatever, but... I mean, it was an horrendous day, but we managed to get the result, and we got the wrong inf- we got the right result and the wrong information. But um, by the time we got off the pitch, um, those of us who were lucky to have anything left by the time we got off the pitch, um, I left several items, including my boots. Uh, but we got in the dressing room, and we were told that um, Sheffield Wednesday would be in Birmingham to which um, we were all very happy about, but of course they were still playing. So for me, I suppose it was a memorable game, but a sad game as well. Um, my first my first game, my first game um, against Blackpool, you know, my debut, I thought that was, a, that was a wonderful experience. And it's funny, somebody told me that my 300th game was also against Blackpool, which, which was funny. But um, again, when I played against Blackpool, my manager at Coventry was playing for Blackpool. That was Gordon Milne. Um, uh, Jimmy Arfield was playing then and all these players. Only you weren't born then, was you? Um, I've fallen asleep, mate. I've got to be fucking honest. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you are. Well, keep away, would you? And by the way, change your shirt next time. Um, but apart from that, it was... It was, I'd say no more, fuck it. <laughs> okay, see you later. I've had enough of him. <laughs> see you, chaps. Take care. I'm only joking, Kingy. Come on. Gotcha. Got the fishing rod out. Well, <laughs> <laughs> if that's in your case, Horny, it would have been the whole game, was it? Yeah, you almost. No, no I, I'm going to I would say my debut for the club was a special, special day for me. I only knew an hour before the game. We got beat 2 1 at Sheffield, Sheffield United away. Peter Wyth was playing up front. I'll never forget the first corner coming, and he gave me this massive, almighty elbow in my face, knocked me down on the floor, and he picked me up. He said, Right, it's only in professional football now. Get ready for it. And it was the biggest lesson he could have, he could have taught me. I had I had a great game for 89 minutes and made a mistake. Um, but that, that, I think making a debut for Millwall was was special for me and my family. Um, um, but Bournemouth stands out. Not, not that I played particularly well, but penalty asked what well, I saved with a minute or two minutes to go, whenever it was. Um, yeah, and, and Hull away as well was a very, very special day. Um, the support that went up there, I mean, we took over three quarters of the ground, I think. But the supporter went up there that day and just just getting promoted and what it what it meant to so many people that have been Millwall supporters for so many years was 
was just a, a special, special day. I mean, Kingy come very, very close to it, and Fordy did too. But um, it, it, it's, uh, it was just a, a very, very special day. Very special day. And, and of course, although Aston Villa were in the same league as us that year, um, the first game in the top flight against Aston Villa, you know, or, or there's loads of firsts for me. I can't put my finger on my best game, but I, I, was, I played in a very good side and was very lucky. What year was that, Horny? Uh, 86 to 92, mate, I, I was there. So uh, we got promoted 87, then it was 88, 89, 90, 91 in the, in the top flight. And then we got relegated. Bruce Riot come in then, he was an absolute egg. Um, you know, from having from having a, a manager that gave all the players so much respect, never find Jay, if he did it was 10 Hamlet or something like that because he smoked an Hamlet. From when Bruce Riot come into the club, the first thing he said was, if you come in in a tracksuit, 10% of your wages. If you come in unshaven, 10% of your wages. Within 20 seconds of him saying unshaving, Terry Earl looks up and said, put me on the list, and he was off the Rangers. So, I mean, it was... it was. He tried to rule by fear, Bruce, and um, unfortunately it didn't work. He did bring in some good players. I'm not going to say he didn't. As I say, Alex Ray was one of them, but it was it was a shame that the, the, the squad that we had there, um, this, you know, went very quickly... Um, and uh, you know that that was it. And then Mick Mick come in ninety two, maybe end of ninety two, Christmas ninety two, somewhere around there. Nice. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Fordy? What, what's your favourite game in the Millwall shirt? Um, I I always struggle with this question, and I'm sure the lads do as well. Like it's just a million and one games just start flowing through your head, and then you actually people say, "What about that game?" And you actually forget some games or whatever else, but. I definitely think getting promotion promotion at Wembley was was absolutely a special special occasion. Um, considering the year before we got beat, um, considering the position we were actually in, and that's that shirt there. That's the one I have on, on the wall there, um, and that's just as a, a reminder. And something fundamentally changed in me after losing that final. You know, a serious determination and a serious grit came into how I started to prepare for for games and stuff like that. Like it just changed my whole mentality, that loss. But definitely winning the, the to have fifty five thousand Millwall fans at where I think it's probably the largest yeah, team. It's like it was unbelievable. Just half the half the half the stadium. It was like the Coliseum or the Gladiator. You know, and you just walked out onto the stadium and just seen that blue and white and you know to 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 win afterwards and and just to see the fans and and the drive just even the drive up into Wembley way was was amazing and just to see just oceans of blue and white and the fans just absolutely living for it so that was a, a truly special special day and especially for Robbo to score as well like you know the skipper and us to win 1-0 it was a, it was a great time and great great day yeah <laughs> much more different to the season before really could it yeah, where the sun was shining, the goals were flowing, and the year afterwards it was a miserable game. Yeah, Gary, Gary, Gary Alexander's goal is probably the best live goal I've ever seen. Like I'd watch that goal hundred one times. It's such, and it was. I think it was probably the best goal ever scored at New Wembley. Like you know, and uh, he could have had a hat trick that day. And I'm gutted from because uh, I'd be good friends with Gary and. Uh, he scored two, and the easiest one of all in the last, I think, five minutes was a header that ten out of ten he'd scored him, no problem, and he put it wide. And you're just thinking, how has he, how has he missed that? And uh, they go down the other end, score two quick goals, and that was that. And we were left licking our wounds, but we weren't ready anyhow. So 
it was probably a blessing in disguise, really. I mean, can, can, can you, you play at Wembley? Sorry? Did you play at Wembley? Only for school, boys. All right. No, because I didn't. I never played there. Did you not do the, the pain trophy that time, no? Never played Never played there. No, 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 it wasn't there. Never played there professionally. I ended up playing there for a company in London a day after Kevin Keegan which, uh, got beat by Germany at Wembley. I was asked to like, play, but that's that's the only time. I've, I've never played there in a league game or anything like that. So I can imagine, Fordy, it must have been unbelievable. For, and you, Brian, playing for the schoolboys, that would have been a full stadium. Yeah, well, 93,000, I think. But anyway, um, I played there in 88 for Old England against Old Scotland. And um, I must admit, that was fun. That was fun. There was a lot of good faces on there, and a lot of good players. Um, Alan Hudson for us, Stevie Koppel, uh, uh, Davey Watson, who, who we've been hearing about now, suffering so so uh, so badly. Um, you know, so it was a good game. It was good fun, good spirit. Everybody wants to win, and we managed to. But um, it's always an experience, isn't it, going to Wembley, whether you're just going to watch it or, you know, I look back and think, I suppose I've been fortunate to see some good games there. And I was a ball boy there once in 63. <laughs> yeah, a ball boy, 63. England and the rest of the world. And I've got probably the prized possession of my life. And I've still got it upstairs here. Lev Yashin's gloves. Ah, oh, the cat. The cat, mate. Wow, that's you, a, you got Levy Ashen's gloves, yeah. That's and amazing. I was behind. I was behind his goal for the first half, and um, he made saves from Jimmy Greaves and Bobby Smith, Bobby Charlton. I mean, Jesus Christ, just made it look so easy. His positioning was amazing. He wore black all the time, didn't he? All the time, and he had a cap like somebody's going down the paper shop to get a. You know what I mean? Get some paper, one of them caps. You know the old sixpence caps. Yeah, and. Um, he um, he called me over up because you, you know what happened was Jimmy Greaves had a shot and he went straight at me and I caught it and threw it back to him. Whether that made any difference to him, but, but he was sort of calling me over and um, I, I thought he can't be taught. He don't want to talk to me. That's for sure. He ain't got a clue who I am. But he said he gave me these gloves and they had the table tennis. You remember the table tennis bat stuff that they were sewn into the fingers. I'd oh. never seen that before. You know anything like that before? So. To have watched him and stood behind his goal was incredible. And then second half, I had Gordon Banks. Um, wow. I mean, so if you're going to learn it, you're going to you're going to watch it and think, Christ, they don't get any better than this. I mean, on 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 that subject where you raised there, I mean, we we'll go through all three of you, but we we'll start with you, Kingy. I mean, who was your um, hero? What made you know within football? What made you think I I, I want to do this? I suppose Harry Gregg. Harry Gregg, who was at Man United. Um, I, was, I was quite interested in Nigel Sims, who played for Aston Villa, who um, was with them when they, won the, when, when they won the FA Cup. Big, strong, good hands, commanded his area, as we used to have to do in, our, you know, in those days. Um, but Harry was very agile. Um, and, um, well, he played for Northern Ireland, and Mr Ford played for era but um harry was a character i mean he really was a character i got to know him later in life um when he was managing and met him several times and i suppose it was him and nigel sims were two goalkeepers colin mcdonald who played for england and burnley i quite like but um 
you know, then you had Eddie Hopkinson, Alan Hodgkinson, who were who were the small goalkeepers at the time, which was unusual. Ron Springett. Um, so they were people that I sort of, uh, you know, grew up. Ronnie Simpson, who played for Celtic in Newcastle, played at Newcastle. So I suppose these were ones that I would follow and um, try and emulate. Same question to you, Fordy. Um, yeah, I suppose mine would have come a few generations later, but uh, they uh, like that I would have been an avid kind of football fan and like what we were talking about, Levy Ashen. I would have loved Levy Ashen and reading the stories about Levy Ashen and the great keepers like Gordon Banks going back in the day. And I think, you know, I think, for me personally, it, it probably is probably the greatest save I've ever seen. Anyhow, was was Gordon Banks' save at the World Cup? I don't know what Horney and Kingy think, but it was it was amazing just to watch that. And I just loved the whole art of goalkeeping. I just loved goalkeeping. I loved I loved everything everything about it. And for me, growing up, I think you know I was a massive Liverpool fan, and I was just watching ITV Four last night, and they had the eighty nine Arsenal. Arsenal-Liverpool game where they had to win two goals and Michael Thomas scored last minute and you're just yeah. thinking especially with the back pass rule you're just thinking just give it back to Grobler you just keep picking it up you always keep it back to him run across the box you're thinking but they were going for it and they got beat so Grobler would have been we was in the tough flight with them what's that? yeah that was the season that we were there and that's, that's what I was going to ask you there that's what I was going to ask you as I was saying I was going to we were watching the game last night and stuff because the uh, Anfield reminded me a bit like the um, the old den or the cold blow cold blow lane end. So uh, yeah. yeah, there was a lot of similarities, um, and there were some great keepers in that genre. Like in the old school days, Steve Grizovic, um, Nigel Spinks. I was a big fan of Spinks. My brother was a Villa fan. Um, Walter Zenga, I loved Walter Zenga, the Italian keeper. Um, and then I suppose primarily one of the biggest kind of influences on my career was being a Liverpool fan and. Uh, was David James, and uh, yeah. I would have I would have admired David James, even though I I didn't I wasn't a big fan of Man United, but I admired Peter Schmeichel and stuff as well. Like you know, just what he did to, for goalkeeping and what he did in terms of you know transcending transcending goalkeeping full stop. Like so, yeah, there was so many so many things there, and like what Kingy said, you just you take a little piece from all the little goalkeepers and 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 you make it you make it your own, you make your own style, and you make your own unique way of, of, of how you play and how you see goalkeeping and how it should be how we should be operated so yeah it was it was it was amazing I mean you think it, it just brings you back to that youthful time with those memories and it makes you reminisce as a young kid when you had your panini stickers and you were always looking out for the goalkeeper first Bonner would have been one of your heroes as well wouldn't he you. yeah I forgot about Packy yeah and, and that was a that was probably a game changer for me was in um, Italy 90 when he saved the penalty. In, against yeah. Romania in the uh, yeah. quarterfinals, it was massive. Yeah, David Leary brought... went up and scored the winner. Huh? Yeah, smashed in the top corner, didn't he? Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even yeah. yeah. Jack Charlton weren't even talking. They don't even shook hands after the game. <laughs> <laughs> so, your goalkeeping hero, Orny? Well, you've got to understand. I grew up on the terraces at Coldblow Lane. Then, so there was a certain gentleman called Brian King that I used to watch every week. Um, and uh, he, he was one that I tried to emulate my career on. Um, and uh, Peter Shewan. Peter Shewan wasn't the biggest goalkeeper like myself. Um, and I used to, I read a few books of his and uh, how he used to try and make himself bigger, hanging on the banisters every day and uh, on the stairs and, and different bits and pieces. Budgie, not not because he was a, he was a top goalkeeper, John Burridge, but 
he was just off his head. <laughs> don't know if you've actually um, read Have you ever heard the story about him in the orange? Yeah, yeah, where his missus has got to throw it across my front room. Yeah. And he, go, he goes to sleep with his gloves on and a ball in bed. Like, he's absolutely off his trolley. I saw him probably two years ago in, in Dubai, and he's still playing at 67, still chucking himself around, seven aside, still off his head. Um, but like, he, he was someone that I think at the time just epitomises the goalkeepers. But Brian, I think Brian, my dad, you know, used to say to me, watch him, he's, he's you know, he's a, he's a good goalkeeper. And, um, you know, and, and I can remember a lot of goalkeepers, Peter Glazier, Paul Sanson, um, then we had, uh, who else did we have coming in there? We had Ray Goddard, John Jackson, um, you know, all them goalkeepers that come through from Millwall that I watched on the terraces, Peter Wells, early doors. So you can imagine when we played Derby County at a time where Shilton was, and I walked out side by side for him, I think it was our third or fourth game at home. It was it was amazing for me to, to be playing against someone that I'd looked up to as a, as a youngster and as a kid and... Now I was I was playing against him. It was it was amazing. But as as Foley and Kingy said, goalkeeping is a a real special position, and it takes some crazy people to play there. And but you you tend to find that we're we're all characters, and and uh, and and we love the game. We love what we do. It's an art, and we we will dive in the rain and pour in rain. We'll we'll be out much longer than everybody else working and. And making sure we're we're right for, for for Saturday, but I must say, just on a different subject, that's what's gone out of the game for me. From when Fordy and, and them type of people, there's no characters left in. I don't think Fordy might agree with me, but them type of characters that were on the pitch now or whatever, there's there's not many of them left, and I think it's a real shame because you know that's what made football for me. The different characters on the pitch, the, the intimidation, as Fordy's just said, the the sighting in the tunnel, the the Vieiras, the Keens, and all that type of thing, the Battles, the Adams, the, you know, all the, all the great players and, and the Kitcheners at Millwall, the Terry Erlocks, you know, them, them, them great players that have, have, have come through and there's not many of them left and it's a real shame. I mean, you, you're talking about characters. Obviously, you've all, you all played um, with some, some great characters and whatnot. Um, how... Has goalkeeping changed over the year? Because you're three different areas. Obviously, like your gloves probably now for you are a lot probably a lot thicker than what they were when Kingy played and, and maybe when you played. I mean, and, and the rule change and everything else. Do you think the rule change and the equipment what keepers have have got better or or, or worse over the years? Kingy, you better start, mate. You played in flannels, didn't you? Oh, you yeah. played, you played it with the green gloves, didn't you? The bonettes. He didn't have any gloves, did he? At one stage, bit of spit. I mean, if it didn't, if it didn't rain, I mean, used to use them big old mitre balls, and um, it was a bit of wrigglish, bit of spit, bit of dirt, and um, away you went. And you only used gloves when it rained. I mean, um, I remember my nan saying once to. To, to my dad when they were watching a game and she said um, must be cold he said why is that she said the boy's got gloves on so he said nice to rain then you know what I mean but but there was there was certainly not five bob a pound um, from army and navy stores that's where we got them from Jack used to say get a dozen pairs um, and um, that was it nowadays of course they have to wear gloves because the coating on the ball 
I mean, it's very, very difficult if you don't have these, you know, again, it's all making money. Um, the balls today are very, very difficult to even handle without gloves on. Um, so then you've got the price of the gloves. I mean, I think Peter Cech's just brought a pair out which fit nearly under your elbow, um, which I saw is about, I think they're about £160 for a pair of gloves. I mean, Jesus. Um, if I'd have gone to Benny and said, I've just seen a pair of gloves that are going to cost 160 quid a year, you'd have had a chance of buying them. Um, but the ball is lighter. Um, there's been a lot mentioning lately about centre forwards and centre halves having big problems from when they played in our day because the balls were heavy. I mean, I mean, I remember teams coming to the den and I remember Jack on a Thursday putting four balls in the bath. Um, in the visitors' bath, in the visitors' bath, and leaving them there till, till like quarter ten on a Saturday morning, and you can imagine these balls would absorb an awful lot of water, and um, they'd be placed neatly under the benches, around. So when the player first thing you went into an away dressing room, then and you go bloody hell, how long have these been in the bath? Huh? But um, I don't. Um, I I have a feeling like Brian was saying about characters and everything else. I don't think. For me, when I was practicing, when I was training, it was great to feel the ball. It was great to get a feel of the ball. Um, you know, with no gloves, it'd sting, it hurt you, whatever. But you just got on with it. Today, I mean, you don't see a goalkeeper without gloves today. It's as simple as that. And in our day, we only wore them when it was wet. And... Um, as Orny said, I had a pair of Peter Bonetti's, the, the prototype pair. We were, we were all sent a pair of Peter Bonetti's. I played at Carlisle. And if you've played at Carlisle, you know what it's like, especially in December or January. It was pouring with rain coming off that fell at the back there through that open end. By half-time, I was stood on the fingers. I mean, you couldn't believe that. All the, the water, as soon as they got wet, they stretched. And I was lit, literally, the fingers were, were two and a half foot long. <laughs> And um, oh, wait, that's true and all, by the way. I'm, I'm laughing because it's true. I nearly fell arse over red when I was coming off the pitch because they were hanging down on the floor. Turn the arse over, I mean, that that was a revolution. We had Peter Shilton's white goalkeeper jumper that we were all sent to try. Can you imagine wearing white goalkeeper jumper down the old den? Come on now, you've only got to make a ricket, and it's good night, isn't it? Um, in white. <laughs> No, no, I don't. Um, I don't know whether I want to play now. To be honest, I'd want to play because of the money, but nothing else. None of them would be your mates. <laughs> <laughs> what's What's your view on on your gloves and the balls when you played them, Horny? Um, I think when I first started out, I, I was the same as Brian. I used to just use my hands um, when we used to go to training, but obviously. The, the ball's changed to a Maya. I don't know if you remember the... No, we had the Tango. Was it the Tango's first or the Myers? Well, yeah, I think so. And they were just a different style of ball. And, and your hands, when, when the ball was where's King, you said it, you couldn't get a grip on them. So I was sponsored. I got sponsored by Sondico. Um, and I used to like gloves tight fitting. I don't know what you like, Fordy, but so you, your fingers were really tight in the gloves so you could still feel the ball when you was catching them. So I, I used Sondico and that's all I used throughout, throughout my career and, and they were just fitted to me hands. And 
Um, so yeah, I didn't. When the new ones come out, they were webbed fingers and thicker fingers and different bits and pieces. And I tried them, and I just didn't feel you could feel the ball as as well as you could do if you had, you know, just some to your fingers. And so that that was that was the gloves I used, and 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 so that never changed over my career. The the, the club the, the gloves did. There was loads of different brands being brought out, but um, yeah, Sondico was were, were the ones I used and. Uh, kept with right away through my career. I was comfortable with them and I didn't see any reason to change. We didn't get paid fortunes to wear them. I think we might even, I don't know, hundred quid and maybe got 10 gloves a year if we were lucky um, back then. But they'd done the job for me. It was fine. But primarily it was like Kingy said. I mean, I'm just laughing at them green gloves. It was so true that like you used to rub them in the mud in the goal and if it, you know, and that, that would be your stick. The, the mud would sort of dry off on your gloves and it would become sticky, but the, 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 they had a big, a big thing by your wrists. And as King, you said, when they get wet, they just stretch and stretch and stretch. And by the end of the game, you had to chuck them away. But um, yeah, over at Deptford Park training on the cinders, and you wouldn't have known that, Forty. Did you train over there? No, I never trained over there. No, I heard about it, but never trained there. There used to be a running track and a cinder track. Kingy will tell you, they have this diving around on cinders, put your tracksuit bottoms on, and you'd be having shooting sessions on cinders, diving on cinders, like on a Thursday and a game on home. But that, that's where how it was. They didn't have a training ground, really, at the time, and you had to sort of train where you could. You know, you'd be at Greenwich Bath, Bright. Was you at Greenwich Bath? No, no, we just got to Lewisham. We went up to Lewisham. There was, like, for indoor... Um, five-a-side stuff, we used to go up there, or we used to go to Crystal Palace. Um, when that opened, they had an indoor um, five-a-side area, which, yeah. which was okay, but when you were training over at Deptford Park, they used to send the apprentices over early because if the school got there before, we couldn't train there. I mean, so the apprentices used to get over there and, and, hog, the, um, and hog the cinder pitch, so when we come over, we could use it. But if the school came out, before we got there, then we could, we had to wait for them to finish. And then George Graham on a Tuesday afternoon on the running track used to absolutely run the knackers off you. Was that Southwark Park? No, uh, uh, Deptford. At Deptford Park is a running track around there. It's not there anymore. Well, it still might be, but there used to be a, a metal fence going around the 400 and George just used to run over there. The funniest thing I've ever seen in my life, George Graham was quite a taskmaster, you know, quite a really disciplined man. And we had a, a black lad in the side called Trevor Booker. And he wasn't the brightest, you know, he was, he was, he was, uh, being polite, he was thick, but that, that's not how bad he was. He was worse than that. And uh, we're, we're, we're sort of running over, I think it might have been a Sunday morning. That's when, Sunday morning started coming into the game where you'd come in and train after a game and he was running over there and he just went up to George when they were driving in the car and just went, Oi, geez, can you give us a lift, please, mate? And like that's not, not something that you would probably say to George Graham on the way running over. So it was just them, them, them type of moments. But yeah, the running track over at, at Deptford Park Tuesday used to, you know, used to do something like, I don't know, four, four hundreds, and then you might do eight two hundreds, and then you do sixteen hundreds, and then I don't know twenty fifties. That would be your running session for for a Tuesday, and then run back to the ground, and then you had Wednesday off. But you know you'd been in a session on a Tuesday with, with George when he was about. Yeah, you're back doing them no horny, aren't you? No walking, mate. At the moment, <laughs> I'll never. Well, Fully, I can honestly say this: I'll never run again. 
Yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. I'm, I'm walking. I'm walking. Walking. If I tell you, I've already done. Yeah, well, that's his punishment, I think. Yeah. <laughs> You're for having a go at his missus earlier on. Yeah, that's the frying pan. He just not got managed to get the camera before the frying pan came. So on the same, we we come back to we come back to Hordy in a minute. Um, same question to you. Then gloves and balls changed during your career. Then forty. Yeah, hundred percent. For me, I grew up in the west of Ireland, and for me, my first sport was GEA Gaelic football. So I would have played a lot of centre centre midfield, and that's where I loved the action. I loved the take of it. And it was great for goalkeeping. And I often thought it'd be such a great concept for young goalkeepers in the UK, professional goalkeepers, to go and trial and train in GA circumstances just for the hand-eye coordination, going for high balls in front of you know big clusters of people all using their hands. They can punch it. They can grab it. You're getting kneed in the back. You're getting clattered in the air. So it really toughens you up for that sense of aerial duel and aerial battle. One part of the game I think it's definitely dying out at the moment is um, we're getting a lot of Sabudio goalkeepers. There's not a lot of goalkeepers coming, commanding their areas. A lot of them are just staying on their line and letting their defenders deal with the balls. Um, I think that's a shame because that was such a great art. Um, definitely, I think, on the technical aspect where we were always taught, and I think from from Kingy's age to Horney's age and, and probably up to my, my, um, my genre of goalkeeper was catch. It was always about catch where certainly when coming towards the end of my career, it was a lot of palming and a lot of parrying and stuff like that, where it wasn't so secure the ball. So, um, And I think that came with the evolution in the game, like Brian was saying, with the, the balls being lighter, the balls being slippier, not taking chances, not taking the risks. But for me, it was always about, you know, trusting in your technique and trusting in your own ability that your hands were good enough, whether it was a bar of soap or whether it was rain or whatever. And like that, it it, it, it for myself and my own gloves was, uh, I was a bit like horny as well. I always liked a really thin latex. So mine was only like a millimeter or two, the latex. So I could actually feel the ball. I like to have a nice, nice feel of it. But I definitely get what Kingy is saying because it, it brought me back to when I played Gaelic football. It was a bit of spit, a bit of dirt and that's probably the best grip. But the way the balls are moving now today, the way the pitches are watered, so many chemicals on the pitch, but the balls are like bars of soap, and um, it's it's uh, it's no easy challenge when a ball is coming at you 75, 80 mile an hour. Yeah, especially yeah, but I guess especially as the balls now they move a lot more, don't they? And they dip and they swerve, and boots are designed to put dip and swerve on balls. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, and you see a lot of players now, like since Ronaldo coming in with the knuckleball, you know, where they where they, they they place it, where they use the back of the valve of the ball. So when they hit the back of the valve, it causes that deviation and fluctuation and stuff. So for the time, the split reaction, you get to see the ball half the time. It, it's hard for people to realise, and, and Kingy and Horney will, will totally agree with me in that situation, is oftentimes you may have three, four, five yards to actually react to a ball. So... You know that level of training from such a young lad and that level of uh, conditioning is it's it's such a specialized position, like what the lads were saying earlier. And um, it's it's really if you ever get an opportunity and a chance, is is to go and watch a goalkeeper because it's uh, go and watch some train and go and watch the work that they actually do because it is it is spectacular. One of our big, yeah, our biggest rivals, West Ham United. I take no pleasure in stopping the fun. However. That brings a close to the first part of the Goalkeeping Special with Mill Podcast. 
our three guests were super kind and stayed for a two whole hour interview there. And we thought the best thing to do would be to digest it over two parts and break it down into different various topics. As you can see there, I cut out the West Ham part just as a little teaser. That's next coming up. So if you've enjoyed it, please, by all means, we'd love a review in the comment section below. We plan to release the next part next week, Wednesday. However, if we was to get 10 reviews and you send us a screenshot of the reviews on Instagram or Twitter, we may consider releasing the show early. Just a little incentive for you guys because we obviously love doing what we do for you guys and love doing these shows. But any interaction we get, any feedback is always appreciated. We've got some great topics coming up, talking about goalkeepers, talking about big games they remember more, and obviously talking about West Ham and obviously what I entail for the likes of David Ford, even Brian Horn, and a great account from Brian King with regards to a testimonial back in the day against West Ham. So, yeah, I think we've run our course. If you've enjoyed it, like I said, get in touch, leave some feedback. Three great guests. The second part is even better. So thanks for listening and see you soon. legendary record-breaking goalkeeper Brian King. Called up for England by Sir Alf Ramsey, his was a career touched by a parade of greats such as Gordon Banks, Bobby Moore, and Lev Yashin. But this wickedly funny tale is a brutally candid account of life at the sharp end of English football's golden age in the 1960s and 70s. Pre-order your copy now, the link to order is in the show notes. Thank you for listening and make sure to subscribe now and why not leave us a review if you've enjoyed part one. Message. What up, what up? It's Heather's cousin. You dated her in college, or maybe you were just in the same class. Anyway, I heard you bought a boat, my man. Let's hit the water. Oh, and Heather told me you always liked uh, snacks and stuff, so I could totally bring some chips. When you get a boat, you also get new friends. Make sure Progressive's one of them, and get coverage today for as little as $100 a year. Hey, also, I'm a little short on cash, so can you cover the chips? Thanks. I can see why Heather liked you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Annual premium for basic liability policy not available in all states. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.